How do you turn shyness into strength? On this public radio hour, we'll talk with Marshall Space Flight Center's new associate director, Ray Ann Meyer. Being shy is actually, I found out much later, the fear of being judged. You care about what other people think. So the strength of that is you care about what other people think. You listen, you're empathetic, you care. So I think that's really one of the strengths I have. North Alabama high school band students face a jury during their recent music performance assessment. That's the number one thing. Are you making music and are you making a difference to yourself and the people around you? UAH choir students think about music and what's most important in the real world. Reese's peanut butter cups are the best. Thank you. (laughs) We'll also learn about the Lift Every Voice and Sing Choral Festival and hear a story from the Sundial Writers Corner. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville and we'll be right back. This is the Public Radio Hour, WLRH's weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. In this show, we'll talk with Marshall Space Flight Center's Associate Director, Ray Ann Meyer, about battles with shyness, the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout Solar Sail mission, blasting off with Artemis One, and about her optimism in the new generation of engineers and scientists. We'll also talk with Jason Max Ferdinand and Patricia Hacker about a new community-wide choir festival hosted by Huntsville Master Chorale on Saturday, June 4th at 5.30 p.m. at Trinity United Methodist Church. And spoiler alert, Dr. Ferdinand is leaving the world champion Aeolians Choir. But before he goes, he'll be a guest clinician at Lift Every Voice and Sing on June 4th. They both spoke with Morning Blend host Dory Nutt. In this public radio hour, you'll also hear from young local musicians trying to find their way in this crazy, crazy world. Let's start in a place where a group of North Alabama high school band students have willingly gone to be harshly judged and critiqued by a jury. The smallest misstep could mean complete failure, but a good performance could mean the world. And you only get one chance. Bear witness to what's known as a music performance assessment. Hi there, I'm Dory Nutt of Morning Blend here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Recently, I ventured to Hartzell High School to listen to some great music at the District 1 Music Performance Assessment, an event where middle school and high school concert bands in the North Alabama area played for judges, then received scores and comments on their performances from a panel of judges. I spoke with band students, band directors, judges, and organizers of the event about what made this day so important to them. Okay, my name's Terry Ormby, and I'm from Florence, Alabama. And you're one of the judges here for MPA? Yes. What are the bands required to do when they come to be part of this competition? Well, when they get here, what they've been doing so far is they've actually worked for five, six, seven weeks now on two or three pieces of music. And so they also do something besides just play music that they've practiced, correct? Right. They have the the three pieces they play on the stage for three judges that are here on the stage. And we give them comments for that. Then after they leave the stage, they go into a room where they have about 10 minutes where they get to talk about a piece of music that they've never seen before. And then they sight read that piece of music for the very first time. And then they get judged on that piece of music also. So this is a real test of not just their practicing, but their musical skills that they've built up so far. Yes, ma'am. It's it's all about everything that they've learned to this point and a true assessment of all their basic musicianship. My name is John Bubbitt. I'm from Helena, Alabama. Mr. Bubbitt, what are you listening for as you judge these bands here today? Well, there are many, many factors that go into this, a lot of different details on everything else. But I think the overall arching thing that you really look for are Are these bands having a great musical experience? Are they having something that's going to touch touch their hearts, their souls, and hopefully communicate with their audience through uh, making music? It's just a wonderful art form. And that's that's the number one thing. Are you making music and are you making a difference to yourself and the people around you? So this is way past playing the correct notes and rhythms. Well, that's what we hope for. These are school bands, and and that's all part of it, isn't it? You're not going to make great music if you're playing wrong notes. Ultimately, it goes way beyond that. 
Hi, my name is Davin Kyle. I'm the band director out at West Limestone, and I'm currently serving as the vice chair for Alabama Bandmasters District 1. Davin, you are one of the organizers of this event, and I can tell that it takes a ton of work to get everything going to make it happen. Why do you feel this musical assessment is important? Well, it's pushing the kids to their limit. It is really getting them together, showing them what and how to make music, and it's really getting them used to what it is to really be a musician. You know, you're working all of the aspects of music, from dynamics to blend to intonation to you name it. And then, whenever they go into the sight reading room, that's almost like the way the pros do it. The music that we hear in the movie theaters and things like that, those musicians have had one or two times through it, and that's what we hear. So it's prepping them and giving them real-world experiences. My name is Theo Vernon. I'm director of bands at Grissom High School in Huntsville, Alabama. Theo, I know there must be a lot of challenges in putting together a program for an assessment like this, a musical assessment. What are some of the challenges you've had to face getting ready for this? One of the biggest challenges this year was us only going to school for 10 days in January and missing a lot of rehearsal time. But the students have risen to the occasion as they always do and I'm looking forward to some great performances today. Uh, I'm Dylan from Grissom High School and I play percussion. How do you feel this afternoon as you get ready to go on stage and have your musical performance assessed? I'm excited, a little nervous, but I'm excited about it. Hi, I'm Hannah Lemons. Um, I go to Grissom High School and I play French horn. How do you feel when you play the French horn? It's really fun. It's a challenge, but it's just such a pretty instrument that really combines all of the beautiful things about brass instruments into one. And so getting that challenge and achieving it and making it sound really pretty is a really good feeling. My name is Alex Stouffer. I'm from Grissom High School and I play clarinet. My favorite thing about being in the band is probably the community. It's a really strong group of people and we're together a lot and we're really a team more so than even I think in sports because we work together to create something beautiful and I think that that's really powerful and I really enjoy it. Okay, I'm George Luft. I am from the Grissom High School Symphonic One Band. I play the tuba. Do you think you've gotten any skills from playing in the band all these years that will carry forward into life? I feel like I've been musically inclined all my life, and Grissom Band definitely helped me amplify that, but I feel like Grissom Band has taught me so much more than just uh, music. It taught me uh, discipline, self-control, and respect. My name is Linda Miller, Huntsville, Alabama. You're a grandparent of one of these fine music students on the stage. How do you feel when you watch them perform? I am so proud of them that they do such an excellent job. I'm amazed that they can read the music. They do it very well. <laughs> you can hear the pride in that grandmother's voice, and it was evident as well in the band directors and the groups of earnest, excited band students because it's indisputable here at the District 1 Music Performance Assessment that individuals working together can create something marvelous, a lesson we could all learn from. Thanks to Dory Nutt for that audio postcard from the recent Music Performance Assessment held in Hansville for band students, teachers, and administrators in North Alabama's District 1 schools. This is the Public Radio Hour, 89.3's weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. This month, the various shows here on WLRH have been highlighting Women's History Month through stories and music with connections to noteworthy women of our collective past, present, and future. Let's meet a leader for the present and for future space missions to the moon, Mars, and beyond. Rayanne Meyer began her NASA career in 1989 as a controls mechanism engineer in Marshall Space Flight Center's Propulsion Laboratory. She's also worked as a manager of the Constellation Support Office, helping support developments that made today's space launch system a reality. Meyer was also a manager of Marshall's Science and Technology Partnerships and Formulation Office, and now she's been named as an associate director in charge of Marshall's business operations, policies, and processes. Meyer is also now a senior advisor in guiding the direction of the center's future, which affects the livelihoods of 7,000 on- and near-site employees and has an annual budget of about $3.6 billion. 
Rayanne Meyer sat down to talk with me about a number of things, including NASA's newest solar sail project, the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout, which is a Marshall payload waiting to blast off on the Artemis I mission in the coming weeks. We also talked about her perspective on the next generation of aerospace workers and heard an inspiring story about a childhood battle with shyness, something she's turned into a strength. But early on, she says her career path could have been much different. The first thing I wanted to be was a veterinarian, right? Um, but and, and why is that? Why is that? Oh, I love animals, right? Um, but what I what I really realized was I want to do something in science and math. Um, I can kind of pin that down to a specific event if you want. Oh, please. Okay. So I was in either in second or third grade. And that was a while ago. Um, and I was in a classroom where you it was divided. It, I don't think they do that nowadays, but the the main um, the majority of the kids were learning one thing, and then they had a couple of rows of accelerated students. And I could hear when the teacher was talking to them, and they were learning about the water cycle, right? And I found it fascinating. And I wanted to learn what they were learning. Um, so you were on the other side of the. I was on the point. other side. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just a background. I was terribly shy. I am terribly shy, um, and I didn't talk a lot. So I can understand why I was over there because I didn't interact a lot in the classroom. Um, so it was recess. Um, I got my nerve up, went to the teacher, and said, "I would really like to learn what is happening on the other side of the classroom." And she thought about it, and she said, "Well, to do that." You've got to know your multiplication tables. I was like, okay, I think I can do that, right? And then I went off to recess with everybody else. But what I was surprised when I came back, she invited me to the front of the room to have my multiplication test in front of everyone. Okay, again. That must have been terrifying as, it, a, as a shy kid standing in front of the class doing anything. Yes, it was. Right. And I can tell you I missed seven times eight. And she very kindly said, I just don't think you're ready. So I was devastated. I, I can remember going home, crying, and my parents saying, hey, if you want this, you can do it, right? So the next week, instead of going to um, <laughs> recess, I sat in and I studied my multiplication tables. She was kind enough not to make me go out in front of the class, and on Friday, I passed. And from that point on, it was all about science and math, um, all the way through high school and college and, and where I am today. That's clearly still a very vivid memory for you. And uh, I was really shy in school, too. And I know that it, it's hard to speak up for the things that you want to do. So you must have really, really wanted to do this to put that aside and keep going after it like that. Is that something that you sort of carried through your career path? I mean, that seems like I said, that's a vivid memory for you. So that yeah. must have sort of resonated through the years as you got older. Yeah, I, it is. I'm still very shy, um, but I don't, I try not to let it stand in the way of what I want to do. Um, and when I look back, right, the things that you want to change most about yourself, I, I didn't want to be shy, um, probably led to the strengths that got me where I am today. So, and, and what would those be? I think I'm, you know, being shy is actually, I found out much later, the fear of being judged. You care about what other people think. So the strength of that is you care about what other people think. You listen, you're empathetic, and, and you care. So I think that's really one of the strengths I have. So you said early on you had a love for animals and you wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have a hero? Was there an important uh, female figure in your life? Was there a family member that, that you sort of looked up to? Any, any heroes as a child? Um, my dad. Uh-huh. And why was that? Um, I've never seen somebody work harder to support um, his family. He was an electrical technician. I'm an electrical engineer. Isn't that a coincidence? Um, and he just was really a good person. I've always looked up to him. Not that I don't look up to my mother, but he, he really inspired me. That's 
kind of interesting. It seems like uh, you started as an engineer, but reading your job description and the things that you're in charge of now, it almost seems more like you're in business management in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, is Was there a transition you had to make there, or am I inaccurate in the way I'm describing this? So if you look at my career, I did start as an engineer. Um, 10 years of really hands-on engineering. In the propulsion center. Yeah, wow. it was a great place to start. Um, then I made a transition to project management, and then you do learn a lot of business in project management. It's all about schedule, um, cost, um, and, and getting things out the door. Um, but since that time, I have gone back and forth between engineering and project management. My last job um, was in science and technology, and we had project managers, scientists, technologists. So, um, yeah, both. So I, I think I'm pretty strong in both. Are you finding ways to keep in touch with the part that you love as you have to do these other duties that are kind of thrust upon you as a leader? Um, I can't say that they're all thrust upon me because I love those two. Um, when I made the transition into management or, or leadership, um, you have to give up, a f- you know, the hands-on, right? But the Was satis- that hard to do? At first. But the satisfaction of enabling others to do that is just as great. It really is. And knowing that you're helping others realize, you know, the things you love is, is a great feeling. So you've kind of touched on this a bit, Rayanne. Uh, but if you could more specifically talk about your career path as you worked your way through school, as you um, got through high school and then on to college, and then to your first job at Marshall Space Flight Center as the control mechanisms engineer in Marshall's Propulsion Laboratory. So kind of describe that early career path, how you progressed, how you sort of made decisions about where you wanted to go and the opportunities you had. Okay, so that love for science um, and math really drove me through high school and my my choices there. And I took every, um, every science available and definitely took full advantage of the math that was available at the time. Um, I can tell you my kids had more math now than I did back then, but um, that that's kind of how, what drove my high school career. Um, there was no um, thought of other than going to college. My, my parents strongly wanted me to do that. And engineering seemed like the most aligned to what I like to do. So I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, and you grew up in Chattanooga. I grew up in Chattanooga, yeah. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I did graduate valedictorian. Um, so I, I, I pushed myself, mm-hmm. right? But I got to college, and I wasn't the smartest person around anymore. So again, you know, you're, you're struggling to, to move forward and, and show. And, and I can tell you, um, I went from making all A's to my first C. It just... I, I was like, wow, how'd this happen? And I actually went to my advisor and said, I'd like to take this class again. I don't feel like I have the strong enough foundation. And he's like, you passed this. You did well. If I let you take it again, that's not fair to the people in the class, right? Mm-hmm. He basically told me it was a weed-out class. So I really um, had to think about, you know, was this the right path, the electrical engineering? Because it was my first electrical engineering class. I did much better in my chemical. Is that the first time you've, you had sort of hit an academic challenge like that where you were not to the level you wanted to be? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I decided I was sticking to it. So I, I did graduate. Um, and, and one of the funny things about I was not the first, right? I wasn't the first woman at UT that went into electrical engineering. But I can remember the, the first day I went into the, the electrical engineering building, beautiful building in Ferris Hall at um, UT, and I, I, I needed to find the restroom. It took me 30 minutes, because I didn't want to ask, you know, I'm kind of shy. You actually had to go through somebody's office to get to the women's restroom because it was an afterthought. It would have been, you know, built when only men were in there. 
Um, so that was a little different for me because I had never experienced. You would have had to have asked somebody, it seems like, okay, <laughs> yeah. where, what door do I walk through here? Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, there's like five or six of us in our class. Um, and it was, it was a different environment because in high school, you know, females, males all the time. Um, but I can tell you that, that going through some of my best friends, were the males. It was it was pretty male dominated, and I really became comfortable in the environment, the electrical engineering environment. So it was actually a male friend of mine that told me that there was a NASA center at in Huntsville, Alabama. I had no idea. I'd been to the Space and Rocket Center. Everybody remembers doing that when they're in fifth grade. Um, at least that's when we went. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually sent in a resume. And I got an interview. And I remember coming, and there was a gentleman named John Harbison. I can remember his name. And he told me that he looked at my, my transcript, and he noticed that I was doing very well, not only in my electrical, but my mechanical engineering classes. And he needed somebody that could do both. And I was like, wow, that would be fun, right, to, to marry the mechanical and the electrical. And that is how I got to NASA. Dear listeners, you're tuned to the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 in Huntsville. We're talking with Ray Ann Meyer, Marshall Space Flight Center's Associate Director. And Ray Ann, are you where you thought you would be at this point in your life? You're the Associate Director. Is this a place that you ever envisioned that you would end up? Actually, no. No. Where did you think you would end up? Um, when I got to NASA, my goal was to, to um, be in the position of the man who hired me, um, and that was a division chief. So that's that's where I thought I'd end up. And you went a little bit before, further than that, right? A little bit, yeah. But I was very, very proud when I when I did get a division um, role. So the the NASA website describes your position as uh, being in charge of Marshall Space Flight Center's business operations. Uh, you guide daily business decisions and also oversee center operational policy and processes. Is this something, you spoke about this a little earlier, what is it about your job description that really fires you up every day and uh, inspires you? You mentioned you like to enable people and put people in a position to succeed. What is it about your job now that you like so much? We enable the mission, right? To do anything at NASA, you need the people, the processes, and the facilities. And without it, we can't do our mission. So I, I believe we're the foundation of getting our mission done. So that's, that's pretty inspiring. Okay, so I want you to geek out just a little bit here. Okay. And you're talking to public radio listeners, so they want you to try to go over their heads. Tell me about one or two of your favorite things that you and your team are working on right now. It can be anything, but but give us give us the nuts and bolts of it if you can. Okay, so if I'm going to geek out, it'll probably be something technical, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so everybody know well, not everybody. The Space Launch System um, rocket will launch in the near term. On that rocket is also a Marshall payload um, called the Near Earth Asteroid Scout. It is a solar sail that is currently packaged in a box, a couple of shoe, shoe box sizes, right? And when it actually is deployed will be the size of basically a tennis court, okay? And it's made of thin material, basically the width of a strand of your hair that is highly reflective. And that reflective surface will actually cause propulsion. The sun's photons will hit against it and it will move. So it's a propellantless propulsion system. And it'll allow science in places that we can't usually have enough propellant to keep us at. Things like looking at the sun from an L1 point, things like that. I think that's, if I have to geek out, that's pretty cool. 
And Dr. Les Johnson is one of the people. Les Johnson. I've worked with him for many years. A few years ago, uh, we brought um, the popular uh, weekday talk show, Science Friday, to town. And he was one of their guests, and, and, he was, and, and he talked about that. And I saw him again speaking about it um, at the recent Artemis Media Day. And am I correct in thinking this is really the first of its kind? This, this is, is the, the first of its size. And something that's terribly exciting to me is it is a predecessor of the next one that Les Johnson is working on called Solar Cruiser. That one will be the size of a football field. That is amazing. It is. So what do you hope to learn from this mission? It's going to chase down an asteroid, right? It's going to visit an asteroid. I think this mission, what I want to learn most of is the technology. Does it work? How do we do it better, right? Um, are there any, is there anything we can do better? Um, going to the asteroid, it will show that you, we can do unique missions as well. Are you seeing anything different or significant about the next generation of uh, aerospace professionals uh, compared to when you were coming up? You mentioned your your children uh, having a lot more math and science in their high school curriculum than you did. Are, what are you seeing or are you seeing anything different in the upcoming generations? What, what, what sort of things are they bringing to the table? Um. Any, if you go on any college campus right now, or even in high schools, the potential there is just amazing. You know, the technology that, that we have nowadays brings the ability to learn so much more. I think the expectations on our kids are more than they were when I was, was young. Really? Because you, you hear a lot of talk about how the younger generations are, you know, soft and don't work as hard and people who know young people who are motivated in that fashion know that not to be true. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I don't, I don't believe that's true. I, um, now do they have different, um, philosophical, um, positions? Yeah. Um, I, my, my son right now is looking for work life balance. I, that didn't hit me until <laughs> I had a life, you know, How old is your son? he's 22. Well, I mean, that's something that is good to figure out early on, I guess. Right. Right. Um, but it's because they are so dedicated to what they're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm very impressed with the people that are coming up. Our new hires at NASA, incredibly impressive young people. Um, I'm just hoping that we, we continue to, to enable and give the kids opportunities like we are right now. Do you see them facing any significant challenges or any of the challenges um, that maybe you faced? We've talked a few times on this program about, um, especially in NASA's early days, the, the challenges that women and minorities faced uh, to get on the team and, and advance. Um, and that seems to have evolved a good bit in the past you know, few decades. Uh, are you seeing any specific challenges for young people that, that maybe you faced or any new challenges? I'll talk on two topics here. The first is um, when I came to NASA, I didn't realize the opportunities that I would get. Right? It's been an incredibly supportive environment um, for being a woman or just being an engineer in general. I, I continue to see NASA doing that for its employees. So for that, I'm, I'm just terribly grateful. And I'm, I truly hope that other women see that where they're working. The second thing you talk about challenges, and I'll relay a story that's personal because it was with my family, right? I, I have a daughter, incredibly bright, beautiful young woman. And she was, this was a couple years ago, sixth grade, right? You're getting ready to go to junior high school, and junior high is one of the most critical times for young, young people. And she graduated from sixth grade, and she brought home a letter. And the letter was said that um, she was not recommended for advanced math. Okay. Now, her dad and I are both engineers. She had graduated sixth grade with a 96 in 
advanced math for elementary school. And I was just really perplexed. I, I couldn't understand. And I asked her about it. She didn't understand, but it, it just, you know, it, it hit her confidence. So I called the teacher and I said, I, I don't understand, can you help me here? And she said, well, your daughter is quiet and doesn't interact much. And we don't feel that she can go into an accelerated environment and do well. And we don't want kids dropping once they hit junior high school. It disrupts the class. And I was like, well, is there anything I can do to convince you otherwise? And they said, well, yeah, you can sign a waiver, right? That no matter you know what she's doing, she's going to stay and, and stick it out. So it, it took us a while, my husband and I, because we didn't, you know, we, we trust the school system. We really do. Um, That's we, incredible. A personality trait would be factored into the decision on whether a student is capable of, of doing something academically like that. Right. And there's a part of me that said, well, is this because she's female, right? Um, so we talked to her and we decided, you know, even if she makes a bad grade, it gives her an opportunity because it sets you up for what you're going to do in high school. And so we signed the waiver and off she went. And about two weeks later, I was sitting talking to a, a neighbor whose daughter, who's just, just brilliant, had got the same letter. And she went ahead and put her daughter in the, the lower math. And when she found out what we had done, she, she signed a waiver, right, and got her daughter. So this is a long story, but end of the story, end of seventh grade, first year of, of junior high school, they have the awards ceremony. And I'm looking down, and the top 10 students in math, all female, those two girls are in there, right? You just have to give them opportunity, and they have to know they're supported. So that's a story for not just females, but males as well. That period of time, I think, is where we make and break STEM. Kids have got to have the opportunity, and it has to be okay to fail, because not everybody is STEM, right? But you need the opportunity to prove yourself and to gain your confidence. And that kind of leads nicely to this last question. Is there a lesson in life that you have learned that you might like to share with other people? That's, that's pretty amazing, that story right there. Is, is there a, a lesson in life that maybe you wish you had learned earlier or that you learned early and were able to carry through? Oh yeah, there's, there's several. But um, one is to embrace who you are and not you know, look for your strengths because we need them all. We don't need the whole world to be the same person. So that's hard because there's a stereotype that everybody wants to live up to. But I th really think if I had pushed myself to be somebody I'm not, I wouldn't be where I am today or I wouldn't be happy with where I am today, if that makes sense. So it's accepting you for you, loving you for you. Um, and then using your gifts. And you are happy where you are today. I am. I am. That was Marshall Space Flight Center Associate Director Rayanne Meyer here on 89.3's Public Radio Hour. Are you happy with where you are today? We sure hope so, or we hope you can move in a good direction. It's like Rayanne said, if you want it, you can do it. Hear this conversation again on our podcast at WLRH.org and on the WLRH mobile app. Just look for the Public Radio Hour. This is our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. And speaking of homemade, we hope you enjoyed Dory Nutt's audio postcard at the beginning of the show about the music performance assessment for District 1 band students. Assistant producer Jordan Clavon has also been out speaking with young musicians, exploring this question of why do people play music? He spoke with UAH choir students about why they enjoy music and how music plays a part in their lives. I'm Jordan Clavon, and thank you for tuning in to 89.3 WLRH, the main signal for public radio in the Tennessee Valley. 
I had the opportunity to speak to young musicians attending the University of Alabama in Huntsville and hear why they enjoy music and how they plan to incorporate it into their lives post-graduation. My name is Kenesha Phillips. I am a graduating senior studying music business. I enjoy that it's a full body experience. It's not just for your ears, it's for your heart, for your head, for all of your body. You feel it all over. What brings you to UAH's music program specifically? Well, I had already had a working relationship with them because they collaborated with uh, Huntsville Community Chorus Association, where I have been a member for many years. And so I knew that this was a caring faculty and that they knew their stuff. So it was a no-brainer for me. And what's your favorite aspect of being a musician on UH's campus? I love the ensemble experience. I love choir. Just something about all of our voices being in sync together is really special. Where do you want to explore in music post-graduation? Or have you already started taking steps for that? Yeah, I just recently accepted a job as a general manager for Opera Huntsville because, again, my concentration was music business, and I want to direct an arts organization one day. So I'm glad that an organization saw me and was willing to take a chance and let me work with them. Anything else you'd like to add? Reese's peanut butter cups are the best. Thank you. <laughs> I'm William Houghton. I am a computer engineering student here at UAH, but I spend a lot of time with the music department. And what do you enjoy about music? For me, it's probably the emotional aspect. You can find so many different songs and pieces for different moods. I have a bunch of different playlists for if I'm having a good day, if I'm having a bad day, if I'm just getting work done, things like that. There's something for any time. And it's sort of the soundtrack of my life. What brings you to UAH's music program? I'm at UAH for the engineering, but I would say that my experience with the UAH music program has been that they're very accepting of non-music majors and that they're really good about bringing people who aren't necessarily committed to a full-time career in music into the fold of all of their programs. What do you want to explore in music post-graduation and or have you already started taking steps to kind of secure music as a part of your life past college? I'd love to work with community choirs, maybe church choirs, community college choirs, things like that after I graduate, wherever I end up, so that even if I'm not necessarily working a job in music, I'm still performing. We just heard from two members of the UAH Choir. To find out when you can see these musicians and more perform, visit www.uah.edu and click the Events tab. You're tuned into 89.3 WLRH, music, news, and community programming for the Tennessee Valley. Thanks for listening. This hour, we've been talking about the idea of pushing ahead and reaching beyond, even if you have challenges in your path. Why do people do what they do? Where does a passion for doing something come from? Sometimes people do the things they do simply because they love to do them. And if you've ever seen groups led by Huntsville Master Chorale Artistic Director Patricia Hacker and conductor of the world champion Aeolians Choir, Jason Max Ferdinand, well then you've probably felt that passion and power in their performances. Jason and Patricia are teaming up for a community-wide choral event called Lift Every Voice and Sing, hosted by the Huntsville Master Chorale on Saturday, June 4th at 5.30 p.m. at Trinity United Methodist Church. The public is invited. Ferdinand will be a special guest clinician. They sat down recently with Dory Nutt during our mid-morning music show, Morning Blend. And here's a portion of that conversation about the Lift Every Voice and Sing Choir Festival. We've been listening to the Aeolians of Oakwood University in a 2008 recording of Lift Every Voice and Sing, their conductor, Jason Max Ferdinand. He's here today with us, along with Dr. Patricia Hacker. They're talking about the Huntsville Master Chorale's very first choral festival called Lift Every Voice and Sing. 
And this is the first time that you've presented one of these, but you said it was born out of having to stop singing during the pandemic. So now everybody's ready to get back together. Patricia, do you remember ever attending something like this, maybe as a student or even as an adult? Did you ever attend a choral festival? I did, actually, with my choir at at the university. We participated in ACDA conferences, the nationals and regionals, and I think it was a great experience. Experience. I did experience this as an adult, not as a, you know, when I was in the school. And it was just something so, you know, impact my life mm-hmm. a, a lot. And the level of preparation that you have. But also I've done some community festivals as well. And I think it's, it's just so invigorating to be two days emerged with a fabulous, fabulous clinician and and get the music, just digest the music so, so well, mm-hmm. and then have that final concert is, is just amazing. And I know people are going to enjoy so much having Dr. Ferdinand with us in the festival. He is an amazing clinician. He just finished a doing uh, the American Choral Directors Association final concert for the regional conference. Everyone was just delighted and in awe of the performance level of the Aeolians, and especially for him. But it has to come from him because I've seen how much energy and that relationship with the students and the choir and him and we want to know the magic that he put on, on that. <laughs> you mentioned how much the students got out of it. Everybody was just energized by your conducting, by your suggestions during rehearsal. I know that the participants in this choral festival or in any choral festival get so much out of this. Do you get anything out of it as a clinician? Oh, definitely. I always tell people I probably learn more in the room than anyone else. Being a clinician is an interesting thing. You can't approach every festival, every situation the same way. So it's always a matter of adjusting very, very quickly. And because of that, I think it, it kind of sharpens my tool belts in different ways. <laughs> I mean, it really do. Um, yeah, this know. is not like just meeting with your choir, the Aeolians, right. five times a week. You know right. exactly what level they're at, yeah. how they will respond, or yeah. most of the time you can yeah. predict. But right. this is a whole new group of people. Yeah, a whole new group of people, and you have to really listen like you know listen in real time and adjust in in the moment so yeah i, I always come away and you know, i have a little notebook i keep i just write stuff down the lessons uh, learned oh yeah yeah <laughs> otherwise i'll forget yeah definitely I, i'm i'm always trying to learn i know everyone is going to enjoy this even if you're not a singer you might want to come to the concert mm-hmm. on saturday night that'll be june 4th that's a long time away but we're talking about this now because the time to register for this choral mm-hmm. festival is right now like you say pre-registration ends march 31st people can find out about how to register give us uh, the website again yes hsv Okay, easy enough. Is there a phone number by chance if somebody doesn't have access to We a don't have a phone number, but they can request and we can email immediately. There is a information page in there. So if you want uh, information, more information, you can send us an email as well. Okay. Do you know the email address? Is hsvmastercorrad at gmail.com. Okay, so two different ways to get in touch, find out about this. Let's move on to another topic quickly. I've already broken this news on the air, but it's been on Facebook, so it must be public knowledge. Jason Maxford-Nan, you have accepted a position as Director of Choral Activities at the University of Maryland starting in the fall semester. First of all, congratulations. This is your alma mater, right? It is. What does it mean to you to be going back there? Oh, wow. Great question. Well, first of all, the, the, the circumstances behind how I was hired is just humbling in itself, you know, meaning a, a search wasn't done. The search was waived. And they said, we just, we just, you know. That's very unusual you know, in, in these that, situations. Yeah. yeah. No, um, and that's not something I'd like to repeat a lot, but that's that's what happened. So to answer your question, because it came from that kind of background, it was very, very humbling and kind of... Um, Shocking, honestly. So I'm honored to go back and take over my mentor, my professor, who's retiring in May. Oh, and, that's um, amazing. So he's been there since since you left. He's been there for 22 years, yeah. since, mm. since 2001, I guess, yeah. And he's retiring and laying down that baton, and it just, it just kind of seemed... 
perfect timing and, and, and so many other things. But I'm really, really honored to go back. I know every teacher, every choral director, band director would love to have one of their former students mm. step into their shoes yeah. when they leave. They'd feel good about that. I'm sure he had something to do with your selection. Uh, uh, huge parts. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Well, now the hard part, leaving mm. your beloved Aeolians. Local mm. personality David Person said, and I quote, Jason Max Ferdinand leaving Oakwood University is like Nick Saban leaving the University of Alabama and the Crimson Tide. That about sums it up. How long have you been at Oakwood? 14 years. Oh, a long time. Yeah, this, this is my 14th year. And, um, you know, yeah, it, it's tough. It was very, very tough. Announcing it to my faculty and then to the students was chilling. And um, But the students, you could, they're very sad about it, but understand the circumstances and very happy for me. And they've determined to make you know my last few weeks here all very memorable. And, and Patricia um, alluded to, we just did the Southern Region ACDA, American Choral Directors Association, which I don't even have the words to describe the performance. It was just everyone was crying at the end. Right? I mean, oh, everyone, I still, was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was pretty moving. And the students, mm-hmm. and and what made that even more special, Patricia? I don't know. I didn't share this with the audience, but the entire month of February, I'd seen them twice. With your the, traveling and twice, I saw them the Sunday before the conference, <laughs> and then that Tuesday, and that, was, and that was it. So, so I'm saying all that to say kudos to them because I was going to say that speaks a lot to yeah. their dedication, yeah. self motivation yeah. to to stay prepared, to stay right. ready to sing right. when you got back. And, and yeah. two of my faculty members are Richard and Luke and Stephen Murphy, who who I taught in high school and here at Oakwood, and are, are on the faculty, and they did all the rehearsing and stuff. So it was amazing to see them yeah. sing, and I could literally see them growing on stage like musically I'm like oh wow how did they they do that everyone is just trying to make this last few weeks uh, very memorable and it's been very very contemplative for me for sure I'll bet. Well, I know a lot of tears have been shed at Oakwood, but there's so many, like you say, so many great students, great faculty mm. members. The program is so strong. They will yeah. continue to turn out these amazing Definitely. graduates. Who knows, maybe someday there will be somebody from Oakwood that will take your place at University of Maryland we, we way, say, yeah. way on yeah. down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and just to say, all of you choral singers here in town, this may be your last chance to sing in a choir with Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand. Who knows, you may be back to do this every year, but we just don't know what the future brings. So I would say this is a fantastic opportunity to get to study with a master. Even Even if you're like me and you're a shy singer, you could come and just observe. And I have to say, I have observed you. I'm not really a singer, but for some years, I played in the orchestra yeah, when right. the aliens yeah. would sing, and I would get to experience that. And it's yeah. just not to be missed. This is yeah. something everybody should consider signing up for. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks to Patricia. I mean, it all seems very fortuitous, right? I mean, we, we kind of talked about this sometime back, but yeah. the Maryland thing, I mean, I was still going to be in town. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for this to kind of come to fruition now and Cap it's, off your it's gonna time be a few here. weeks before I move. I'm sure. When we we talk, it's like we have to do this uh, together because I know how wonderful he is, and mm-hmm. knowing that he is not just in a national level recognized as a national level, but also international. Mm-hmm. I know it will be sought out to to yes. be in in other places, and I am just congratulating you, and I'm just so happy happy for you. Thank you deserve you so it. And, and oh, wow, we're going to miss you tremendously. We are going to miss you tremendously here in Huntsville. Thank but so we're much. happy for you. Well, thank you so much. We're all happy here. We're all happy to hear about the choral festival called Lift Every Voice and Sing, presented by the Huntsville Master Chorale, featuring Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand as clinician. It's coming up in early June. Deadline to sign up is coming up by the end of this month. Check your information online for the Huntsville Master Chorale to find out about that. And let's go out with some more great choral music. I think this is very appropriate. You're happy to have him as clinician. He's happy to be serving here. We're happy about your new job. Let's listen to a piece called I Sing Because I'm Happy. And before I start the music playing, I'll just say thank you to both of you for being here to tell us about this. And we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dory. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. (laughs) 
That was Morning Blend host Dory Nutt talking with Patricia Hacker with the Huntsville Master Chorale and Jason Max Ferdinand, the current but soon-to-be former conductor of the world champion Aeolians Choir from Oakwood University. Jason will be a guest clinician at the June 4th Lift Every Voice and Sing Festival at Trinity United Methodist Church. You can find more information at hsvmasterchorale.org. You can hear the longer version of this conversation or a podcast of this episode of Public Radio Hour at wlrh.org and on the WLRH mobile app. Leave us a comment by clicking the Leave a Comment button. Let's close the show with a visit to the Sundial Writer's Corner, followed by a big Sundial announcement. Welcome to the Sundial Writer's Corner, one of WLRH's longest-running shows and greatest traditions. We feature poetry and prose submitted by talented Tennessee Valley wordsmiths. I'm Dory Nutt, one of the Sundial producers, along with Brett Tannehill. Today, we feature poet Richard Evan McKay, who says recently his poems have been impacted by events in Ukraine. This one is called Eulogy of Ecology to the Human Spirit. Living in surely troubling times with past systems of sacredness, logic, meaning, and allegiance falling away. These times are a ripe opportunity for despots of power to sow their seeds of force on our human spirit, to force our compliance. I believe, though, that the eye of truth, the eye of human history, the eye of the living planet, will again shine its light, dissipating the shadows of untruth and aggression, so that the source and ecology of the human spirit will again flourish and flower. Richard Evan McKay has been a poetry reader with the Huntsville Literary Society group for several years. He calls himself a multi-potentialite. He could have gone a lot of ways in life. He chose to spend time in the Air Force as an English teacher in the U.S. and abroad and also served as a health care worker. After retirement, he decided to become a writer. You can hear Richard's poem again, along with all the other Sundial stories and poems, by visiting WLRH.org and clicking on Sundial under the Programs tab. You can hear a new episode of Sundial every Monday morning at 9 here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Hey, did you hear the big news? Madison Press has published a new book of our Sundial Writer's Corner called 52 Weeks of Sun. It's packed full of great stories, poems, and other wordsmithing by writers of all sorts here in the Tennessee Valley. You can find 52 Weeks of Sun at local booksellers like Snail on the Wall, also on Amazon in paperback and digital. A big thanks to Madison Press. Also thanks to Patricia Hacker and Jason Max Ferdinand for telling us about the Lift Every Voice and Sing Festival on June 4th. And best of luck to Jason on his continuing musical journey. Thanks also to assistant producer Jordan Clavon and to Marshall Space Flight Center Associate Director Ray Ann Meyer. And thanks to you for listening. Find podcasts of this episode and other episodes of the Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org. Just look under Programs or find everything on the WLRH mobile app. Talk to you next time 